Well, everyone else will want to get out your sermon outline. So that you can follow along. We're back to Thessalonians today. This is the second sermon in our series on First and Second Thessalonians. And we're starting chapter 2. So you want to turn in your Bibles or read along in your handout. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Please listen carefully to the Word of God. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to your word again this morning. We find we need some things that sound like they're beyond our ability, which means that they can only come from you. So, Lord, once again, open our ears to truly hear, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to understand and apply this word to our daily lives. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. This week I read a unique article about a driving test. Some of you remember having to do, go take a driving test. Anxiety and terror uh, of this dreaded undertaking have driven many people to some pretty shaky uh, test results. However, back in 2001, the effort of one 22-year-old man from the Netherlands takes the checkered flag for the worst driving test of all time. Our hero was motoring along with his uh, test examiner uh, when he managed to get the wheels of his car stuck uh, on a railroad track. And how he managed to do that is beyond me, but obviously it wasn't beyond his unique ability. And lo and behold, a train suddenly came chugging down the tracks. At this point, it would have been very uh, interesting to see the look on the examiner's face. Anyway, both men leaped from the vehicle just before the train, basically a moving wall of steel, smashed into the car. Uh, 
dragging this thing, formerly known as an automobile, several hundred yards down the tracks. The car, what was left of it, then spun off the front of the train and landed on the tracks heading in the other direction. And unfortunately, the car then performed a boomerang maneuver as the train coming from the opposite direction smashed into it, dragged it back the other way where it spun off the front of the train, landing right in front of the two startled men. Needless to say, our ace didn't pass his driving test. During the season of life, tests are things you'd probably like to ship off on a train to Siberia. And yet, tests are an important measure of what you have learned, whether in school or in life. In school, they're important measure, and you have to take them or else you would flunk out, and so you endure them. In life, you have to take them because they arrive, and so you endure them. And God also brings tests your way. The present economic upheaval has caused a great deal of anxiety on the part of many people, and it gets expressed in a variety of ways, in anger, in tears, in fear, in bad political choices, and so on and so forth. There are several uh, tens of thousands of people uh, this morning that are in fear because uh, this week the car dealership where they worked was told it was going to close. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,800 dealerships in our country. And we're told there's probably another eight to 900 more. It's a lot of jobs. A lot of people uh, very nervous and uncertain and fearful for their future. And Christians don't escape the negative effects of the economic downturn. Uh, there's lots of believers I know have openly talked about the erosion of their retirement accounts, or having trouble keeping up their mortgages, or concern about whether or not they're going to have a job next week. And the decline in giving, even that affects churches and ministries. And it takes a tough time like we're in to cause us to perform a kind of a spiritual gut check. What are we really trusting in? Where are we putting our faith when it comes to our own sense of peace, our own sense of well-being? Are we trusting in our economic situation or are we trusting in Jesus? Where is our hope really lodged? And I think God's using this time to probe the heart, both yours and mine. And he's allowing us to experience physical and emotional and spiritual challenges. You may experience pain. How should you respond? You may experience joy. What do you do with that? And we pass these tests by first realizing they've come through the hands of God. And we look for what he is teaching us through these tests. And then if we respond humbly before God, we can discover, as it says in our passage today, in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, if we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. And God uses all sorts of means and manner to test our hearts. And he does it because he's entrusting us with the gospel. 
And we have to seek his strength in our weakness and give him the glory for any success. And we don't want to stand before our eternal examiner one day with a life story that resembles a train wreck. Tests are part of life. And one who got tested more than most was the Apostle Paul. Remember when he planted this church in Thessalonica? He wound up getting run out of town by an angry mob. And so he's writing this letter, and in particular this chapter, in response to that test and in response to the consequences of that test. And so with that in mind, let's continue our study of Thessalonians, which is teaching us about life for the long haul. Before we get too far into this chapter, let's remind ourselves about this church and what was this test about? What was this test that Paul is responding to? See, the church here in Thessalonica was founded by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey in Acts 17. And we know uh, that this was a church built on uh, the preaching and teaching of sound doctrine uh, with a pastoral ministry of love and devotion. And although it's filled with people who are less than perfect, it's a church where God's spirit is at work. However, this brief mission in Thessalonica had been brought to a crushing end. Paul was only there three weeks. Acts tells us he was there three Sabbaths, and then an angry mob rose up. And there was a public riot, and legal charges uh, were brought against the missionaries so serious they were persuaded to take this humiliating night flight out of the city. And Paul's critics took full advantage of his sudden disappearance. In order to undermine his authority and to undermine the gospel... They were determined to discredit him. So they launched this malicious smear campaign against him. And by studying Paul's defense, it's possible for us to sort of reconstruct their slanders. You know, they would have sneered, he ran away. He hasn't been seen or heard of since. Obviously, he's insincere. He's impelled by false Motives. He's just one more of those phony teachers who tramp up and down the coast of Greece. In a word, he's a fake. He's only in it for what he can get out of it in terms of sex, money, power, prestige, whatever. So when a little opposition arose, I don't know if I'd call an angry mob a little opposition, but he finds himself in danger, he takes off, and he runs away. He doesn't care about you Thessalonians. He abandoned you. He's much more concerned with his own skin than your welfare. And based on his defense, it seems that those kinds of things were being said about Paul. We don't have that specifically. We're just sort of implying that from what he's defending himself against in this chapter. And it seems likely that some of the Thessalonians are starting to be carried away by this flood of abuse. And the facts of Paul's abrupt departure... And his failure to return seems to fit the accusations that are being made against him. And his critics' case sounded uh, somewhat plausible. So Paul must have found this attack very personal and very painful. And he's determined to reply to the charges that are being leveled against him, not out of anger or vanity, but because the truth of the gospel and the future of the church are at stake. And he starts by reminding them that he came to them with a bold declaration. That should be the first blank in your outline. Verses 1 and 2, bold 
declaration. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. This word translated boldness means to speak fearlessly and with courage. And Paul is trying to remind them that they already know this about Paul and Silas. He says essentially that six times in this passage. Verse 1, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. And then in verse 2, We'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you know. Verse 5, We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed, God is witness. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Then verse 10, you are witnesses, and God also of how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct towards you. And then in verse 11, for you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. And so six times, Paul is reminding them, you were there, you saw it, you witnessed it, you heard it. Don't listen to all these other people. You know what happened. And he's just reminding them again and again and again. In verse 2, he reminds them, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. And so before reaching Thessalonica, uh, Paul had suffered both injury and insult in Philippi. Him and Silas had been stripped and beaten and thrown into prison and their feet fastened in the stocks. And only been, not only had it been an uh, extremely painful experience, but it was humiliating. I mean, they were flogged naked in public without a trial and in spite of their Roman citizenship. And in Thessalonica, too, Paul had met strong opposition, and yet these afflictions didn't deter him. On the contrary, God gave him courage to go on preaching the gospel, whatever the consequences might be. And so we have sort of two evidences here of Paul's genuineness, his authenticity. He's prepared to suffer for what he believes in, and he's completely open about what happened, what he did, how he acted. And he reminds them of what he did and how he acted and what he said. And he tells them over and over again, you know this, you were there, you heard it. And so he appeals both to his openness and his suffering as tokens of his boldness in declaring the gospel. Far from being empty-handed on his arrival in Thessalonica with nothing to say or anything to bring, Paul has the courage to preach the gospel, and to risk further persecution. Remember, he's responding to false accusations here. One of those uh, that we know from Acts 17 is that these people are being arrested for being disloyal to Rome. They say they have a new king, not Caesar, but this guy Jesus. And so Paul is openly referring to his, Philipp excuse me, his Philippian experience. He has nothing to hide. And he makes it clear that in the midst of conflict, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of opposition, 
the gospel still goes forth. He says that, verse 2, end of verse 2. We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Again, that word boldness means to speak fearlessly and with courage. But I think it takes more than one English word to capture what is a double meaning. It describes both a lack of fear, but it also means that he has a full confidence in the message itself. So there's uh, no fear, but there's also full confidence. And those are two more signs of authentic evangelism. The good news of Jesus, the gospel, must always be proclaimed without fear. Now, the greatest fear that uh, most of us face when we contemplate talking to others about Jesus is fear not of persecution, but of rejection. The fear of being regarded as foolish or stupid all too easily paralyzes us. The fear of not being accepted way too often imprisons us in silence. And most of the time, this kind of fear is grounded in a presumption or a preoccupation with results. And in our calculation to produce results, you know, we're tempted to distort the gospel. We're tempted to tell people what they want to hear in order to get a positive response. And a desire to win more people to Christ, to bring more people to church, is certainly an integral part of the gospel. But our evangelism can't be designed to get results, but to be bold in our God and sharing the story of the gospel. And then we're to leave the results to him. You might say it's our job to get the gospel into their heads, but it's God's job to change their hearts. At the same time, we can proclaim the gospel with complete confidence, as Paul had, in its power and in its validity. It is the gospel of God. It's not of human origin. It's not something that was developed by men and women of great religious genius. It's God's plan for human salvation. It's God's way of bringing people into a right relationship with himself and with each other. And we can trust this gospel of God to change our lives and to change our relationships. And so we declare it with boldness. So that's the first thing we have, a bold declaration. The second thing Paul tells us about, contrary to the false accusations that are being made about them, is that he and Silas came to them with a sincere motivation. The sincere motivation, starting at verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Paul continues his defense against these accusations which are designed to discredit his ministry. And at least three of them are confronted in these verses all of them having to do with his motivation. Some apparently accuse Paul of being motivated by error, impurity, and deceit. Now, individually, each one of those is a serious charge, but together, all three are overwhelming. 
And the truth is, evangelism could actually be practiced uh, out of any or all of those motives. And the first accusation is that Paul is teaching error. Now, the Greek word there is plane, and it basically means deliberate error. He's not, you know, teaching something honestly, and he just got it wrong. They're accusing him of deliberately teaching what's false. And so the ultimate issue when we're talking about the gospel is always truth. The gospel is either true or it's not. Paul stakes his entire life on the truth of the gospel. And there's a tendency in our day to judge values by the wrong standard. The question, does it work, is asked far more often than the question, is it true? And the test of the validity of the gospel is truth, not pragmatism. And evangelism has to be deeply rooted in the truth. And the danger in preaching to attract an audience is obvious. It's too readily disguised uh, to offer solutions that work rather than truth that has to be confronted. And the acid test for every sermon, every Sunday school class, every Bible study must be, is it true? If Christ is presented as a means by which we can be successful, happy, wealthy, whatever, then we're betraying the gospel of God. We're guilty of error, even though we may be successful in drawing people. So that's the first charge against him is error. The second charge he refutes in verse 3 is impurity. Some versions use the word uncleanness. However, the word used here primarily refers to sexual immorality. This accusation probably came from the leaders of the synagogue, for the culture around them is flagrantly promiscuous. And the standards set forth in the scriptures are certainly out of step with the standards prevailing in that community. No different today. And if Paul and his company could be discredited in this arena, then the gospel could be rejected as just another pagan religion. There were lots of pagan groups, pagan cults around there, and cult prostitution was not uncommon in those religions. (coughs) Excuse me. Sorry, just something caught. Anyways, one of the things these pagan cults did is they incorporated sexuality into their worship. That made those cults very attractive. You could go be immoral, but we're not going to call it immorality. We're going to say it's okay. And everybody said... Well, that's a good deal. But you see, if they could tar Paul with that accusation, then the Jews could say, you know, Christianity is just another one of those pagan cults. It's no different from any of the others. And that's what they're trying to to do. And Paul will deal with this issue 
more specifically, more in depth, when we get to chapter 4. But here he just flat out denies this accusation. And actually his conversion to Christ raised his sexual standards as it does for any of us. Certainly the standards uh, for sexuality within the church should be higher than what prevails in our community. I mean, Christ takes us beyond the letter of the law uh, to the spirit of these standards. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Jesus was speaking and he said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Who can ever be the same? Who can ever hold to the prevailing standards in the community after hearing Jesus' teaching about adultery in your heart? And so these standards actually within the church and Christianity have been dramatically raised from that which prevailed in the community. The third charge that Paul uh, has to rebut here is that he's motivated by deceit. That, uh, that word deceit originally referred to catching a fish with bait. And thus came to mean any method of deception to trap or to catch another. And again, there's this intent to deceive, they're accusing him. Not only did he deceive the people, but he did it deliberately. He intended to. And that's what they're saying. And there's no place for manipulation or trickery in evangelism. Paul made that clear in his letter to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 4, he said, But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Guile, craftiness, cleverness has no place in Paul's methods or his ministry. And so having denied the allegations that his ministry is motivated by error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, he defends himself by citing three specific examples in verses 4 through 6. And these three verses call us to integrity in our own ministry and in our own teaching. Paul makes it clear that his ministry is not motivated by error or impurity or deceit. He says, verse 4, we speak not to please men, but to please God. And to Paul, the ministry of preaching the gospel had been entrusted to him by God. And it was to God alone that he felt accountable. To speak in ways pleasing to men and to women may well produce a growing congregation, but the test is whether or not we're pleasing God. Of course, there's a classic description of what pleases God was given to the prophet Micah a long time ago, and it's in Micah 6. And he says, uh, he's talking about Old Testament worship. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then you get the answer. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice 
and love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Now, that's not to say that pleasing God will keep a congregation from growing, but it does mean there's something more important than numerical growth or worldly success. We're called not to please people, but to please God. And if people are pleased by what's pleasing to God, then there'll be growth, at least spiritually. And if they're not pleased by what pleases God, we have to realize the mandate is to please God no matter what. Neither is their ministry guilty of deceit, verse 5. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. The idea of flattery here is giving another a sense of comfort by speaking, but it's being done in order to achieve uh, the speaker's own ends. I'm going to say something nice to make you feel good because I want you to do something for me. And in this case, since he mentions pretext for greed, it's probably, I'm going to say nice things to do because I want you to give me money. And that becomes a description of the speaker's motivation. Greed, some versions use the word covetousness, certainly includes the desire for money. But I think it embraces the whole attitude of always wanting more. More money, more power, more adulation, more recognition, just more. And preaching and teaching can become a means of luring people into our need for more. Preaching is a powerful force, and it can be used for good, and it can be used for evil. And Paul appeals to God as his witness that his ministry was not a cover to use people to enhance either his reputation or his bank account. Nor had their ministry been involved in deceit because they didn't seek glory from men. Verse 6, Paul denies that he ever preached in order to receive glory from others. He wants them to know that it's all about the gospel. The third thing Paul tells us, again, contrary to the false accusations being made about him, is that he and Silas came to them with lives demonstrated by gentle work. Gentle work, verses 7 through 9. Now, I have to sort of read this section twice. Because, you know, I have my own image of Paul. Probably you do, too. And my basic feelings about Paul for a long time were somewhat ominous. He seemed stern and unbending and unfeeling. I always thought that if the Apostle Paul walked into my church, he'd start throwing people out for being half-hearted Christians. You know, what are you doing here? You don't actually believe this stuff. Get out. I was worried he'd throw me out. Or worse yet, he'd be calling in the youth group to carry a few out. <laughs> if you're not sure about that, look at Acts chapter 5. Even though that was about the Apostle Peter, I'm sure it would be the same for the Apostle Paul. And so I'm astounded when I read these words, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of our own children. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. 
And I read that. I think, are we sure this is Paul we're talking about here? The shipwreck guy, the beaten with 40 lashes guy, the church discipline guy, gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children? I mean, I think what Paul is trying to do here is contrast his apostolic authority with his pastoral ministry. And certainly the contrast is really clear between apostolic authority and a mother's gentleness. And he adds, not only is he as gentle as a mother with them, but in verse 8, as affectionate and sacrificial too. Far from using them for, to minister to himself, he gave himself to minister to them. And I think it's quite a remarkable thing that a man as tough and as masculine as the Apostle Paul should have used this feminine metaphor. And there's a lot of Christian leaders who become self-centered and, and sort of autocratic. And the more their authority is challenged, the more they assert it. We all need to cultivate more of this gentleness and love and self-sacrifice of a mother in our teaching and in our ministry. Now, I say that a lot of people say, I don't have a ministry. Everybody has a ministry because you're to act like Christ wherever it is that you are, whether it's school, work, home, neighborhood, wherever. Wherever God drops you, that's your ministry. And probably a lot of us could use a little bit more of the gentleness and love and self-sacrifice. But then Paul sort of changes the metaphor from mother to father. Look at verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. It seems that Paul and his companions had deliberately worked night and day in order to avoid being financially dependent upon the Thessalonian church. Probably they work by day and preach by night. It doesn't exactly say. And for Paul, anyways, we don't know about the others. We're told in Acts 18 that his work was tent making. And presumably this is how he earned his living and paid for his room and board. So in these circumstances, Paul could say, uh, you know, I could have made myself a burden to the church uh, by asking for money. But he was determined not to do so as he planted this new church. This ties right in with some of his teaching in Second uh, Corinthians 8 and 9 where he talks about the other churches that supported him. So it wasn't that he wasn't getting support, but he was getting support from other places and he was working so that this brand new church didn't have to support him. And then he stays with the father metaphor and telling us, again, contrary to all the false accusations that are being made about them, he tells them that he and Silas came to them with lives demonstrated by righteous conduct. Righteous conduct. Says verse 10, you are witnesses in God also how holy... See, I even stumble over that. This is the hardest verse in this passage. He says, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. 
Now, we went over this passage in the high school Sunday school class, and we said, yes, in Christ we're holy and righteous and blameless. But here Paul is saying that he's holy and righteous and blameless in his conduct. He wasn't just claiming that. He was actually living it out. He goes on, verse 11. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So now he concludes his defense by appealing to the witness of the Thessalonians and God as well as to the integrity of his behavior. He insists that his behavior and that of his associates is holy, righteous, and blameless. And whether he intended it or not, Paul gave us a fairly concise definition of integrity there. Holiness, righteousness, or justice, blameless, or purity, the ingredients of integrity. Whatever the charges that are leveled against Paul and his colleagues, he had nothing to fear because of the comprehensive quality of their behavior while they're in this church. Now, if Paul is gentle like a mother, he's also able to motivate like a father. It says exhorting, encouraging, and charging are part of his ministry. The presence of encouraging between the exhorting and the charging. But this <clears throat> presence of encouragement between exhorting and charging I think gives us a pause for reflection. Why is that there? It's a different word than the other two words. I've done a lot of coaching, some of you know. And I've done a lot of exhorting, though you may have thought I was merely yelling. <laughs> Au contraire, I was exhorting. But you also have to encourage. Because when you're the one who's constantly being exhorted to do better, well, it gets a little old after a while. And people need to be encouraged as well. If they do something well, make sure you point it out. Sometimes that means pointing out what they did well, even if things didn't work out the way they wanted to. Let me give you an example. Uh, since I coach baseball, I'll give you a baseball example. If a player hits a sharp line drive, but the shortstop makes this great diving catch, you can still let that player know, hey, you hit the ball hard. That's what we're looking for. That kid made a great play, but you keep hitting the ball hard like that, and the hits will come. You tell him what he did well, even though it didn't work out. He still got out. It's no different for any other activity that demands dedication and practice. There are things there you can encourage people for. You need to exhort people to excel, but you need to encourage them along the way. Those two things have to go together. And Christianity needs those same things as well. Spiritual growth doesn't come easy for most people. They have to keep working at it. And sometimes it seems impossible. The demands of discipleship are rigorous. And to be a committed follower 
of Christ is always costly. Failure is a regular part of of the Christian life. And there is no such person as a perfect Christian. I hope that's not a surprise or I just didn't burst your bubble or something. I'm not perfect, neither are you. And so encouraging must always be in the midst of our ministry of exhorting and charging and preaching and teaching, whatever it is that we do. And the goal of that exhortation, the goal of that encouragement, is clearly seen in verse 12. It says, to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Having been met by the grace of God, we want to walk in ways worthy of his love for us. God's call is rightly translated here in the present tense. God is always calling us, coming to us, loving us. And that awareness makes walking in a manner worthy of God all the more urgent. And God wants us to walk in a manner worthy of him because he's calling us to his kingdom and glory. The two seem to be synonymous here. The kingdom of God is certainly a central theme of Jesus' teaching. It was deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And it's more than a concept. It's a present reality. It's not political. It's not geographic. It's something that happens within us as a church as we commit ourselves to God in Christ. And the kingdom is here, and yet it hasn't come uh, in its fullness. It's yet to come in its fullness. And God is always calling us into his kingdom and his glory. And as I thought about it, we can be grateful for Paul's critics and his attackers. Because in defending himself, Paul gives us a profound statement of what it means to share the gospel. He ties together these strands of bold declaration and a sincere motivation and gentle work and righteous conduct. And to blend each of these into our sharing of the gospel is to demonstrate faithfulness to the God who calls us into his own kingdom and glory. Now, all that is good to know, but it's hard to do. It's hard to do, and sometimes I think we just don't get it. I think that a lot about a lot of things, both in the church and in the culture. A lot of new movies are coming out this month. One of those is Angels and Demons, based on a Dan Brown book of the same name. It's a sequel to the movie The Da Vinci Code, also based on a book by Dan Brown. Though in the book series, Angels and Demons came first, but in the movie, they've uh, changed Angels and Demons uh, into a sequel. So they've changed the order of it from the books. And all the early reviews pretty much say the second movie is as boring as the first one was, which is very unlike the books. But there's not nearly as much buzz this time around. Partly because we're more familiar with the books and the movies this time. But I think one of the main differences for the Da Vinci Code, the claim was made that all of the historical and religious details were true. And in the Da Vinci Code, uh, midway through the book, there's a charge made, an accusation that the church has pulled off the greatest hoax in history. 
The contention in the book and the movie, and now a whole host of copycat books, is that the Emperor Constantine essentially created the Christian faith as we know it. He suppressed any documents of the church he didn't agree with. He elevated Jesus to the status of God, and he hid the fact that Jesus was really married and had descendants that are still living today. Now, if you do any checking of the facts, you find that all of those things are wrong. They're false. They're they're untrue. Books of the Bible are pretty much recognized by the time of Constantine. Additional Gospels were not hidden. They were just rejected as forgeries and as propaganda from a group called the Gnostics. As far as the claim uh, to the godness of Jesus, Jesus made those claims for himself in the Gospels hundreds of years before Constantine. And archaeology has unearthed copies of those Gospels that predate Constantine by decades. The idea of Jesus being married has no evidence whatsoever to support it. And I think we're seeing this trend of what I would call creative truth-telling. Telling a falsehood, but claiming it to be true. I think we're seeing it all over the place today. You know, there's several newspaper writers who have been caught fabricating stories. You know, it's easy to do the fact-checking today. There's lots of athletes who've been caught lying uh, about their particular ability or how they got there. One of the Oprah Book Club selections, A Million Little Pieces by James Frey, was exposed as a largely fraudulent memoir. You know, and with the, uh, the spread of the Internet, one can plant falsehoods and distortions Anytime they want, it could be available to the whole world. However, uh, also for the most part, you can now fact check those stories and reveal when things presented as truth are in fact not true. In fact, they have websites set up that exclusively serve that purpose, a place where people can check stories to see if they're true or not. Sometimes I wish I had one of those websites when people tell stories about me. You know, you could go and verify the truth or, uh, or deny the truth of those stories. Thinking especially when my mom comes to visit. <laughs> she tells lots of stories about me. I don't quite remember them the same way. Although I'm sure all the stories she tells about my dad are just absolutely true. But I was thinking about this, and I wondered if Paul would have wanted such a device in his day. He didn't have anything like that. He's being attacked. False accusations are being made. It's hard to find out the truth. People are saying things and writing things about him and saying, oh, this is the truth. And, you know, there was no Internet to go check. And so Paul is trying to remind them of the truth in this letter, and he refutes all their accusations. Listen to this. He says, uh, verse 2, we had boldness in our God. They accused him of being a coward. He says, we're bold. Verse 3, our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. They accused him of those things. He says, not so. Verse 5, we never came with words of flattery nor with a pretext for greed. Obviously, they accused him of that. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people. 
They obviously said he's in it for his own reputation. Verse 7, we were gentle. They're saying he was harsh. Verse 8, we were ready to share with you our own lives. They say, no, he wasn't. He doesn't care about you. Verse 9, we work night and day. They're accusing him of being a freeloader, a living off of them. Verse 10, our conduct was holy and righteous and, and blameless. And then at the end, he says, we exhorted you, we encouraged you. It sounds like Paul's on the up and up. He's telling the truth. He's sincere, he's gentle, he works hard. And oh, don't forget, he was holy and righteous and blameless. And he's completely confident and absolutely certain about his life and conduct. Sounds just like you and me. Maybe not. So that was the hardest verse in this passage. And could we make that claim ourselves? Do we tell the truth? Or do sometimes we engage in creative truth-telling? I mean, there's a lot of days I can't say that stuff that Paul says. There's days I'm deceitful, sometimes trying to deceive myself. That's probably true for you, too. There's days when I'm not very gentle with my wife or my kids or with you. And my guess is that's probably true for you, too. And can we tell anyone ever that our conduct was holy and righteous and blameless? Sometimes, sure, but all the time? No way. And when I get attacked, I don't usually respond with a careful uh, recitation of the facts. I want to fight back. But usually I have to face the facts that at least some of what's being said is true. In fact, my whole life is a mixture, is a mess of mixed motives, sometimes quite good and sometimes quite reprehensible, and sometimes at the same time. Now, I'm not here to beat myself up, and I'm not here to beat you up, at least not very much. But I wonder, how can Paul say stuff like that? I wonder how how Paul got a life like that. I wonder how I could get a life like that. And one thing I'm pretty sure of, I don't think it comes easily. I think it involves hard things like honesty and transparency and vulnerability and emotional pain. Lots of emotional pain. Doesn't that sound like fun? Now, why would I say that? He says here in verse 8, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And I want to start and end there. There's a sense in this verse that part of the process of becoming holy is being committed to the community, something Mike prayed about earlier today. And in Paul's case, that community was the church in Thessalonica. In our case, that community is Potomac Hills. Now, I don't mean that you have to do everything. You can't. There's already way too many things going on for one person to do. That doesn't get you off the hook for doing something. You need to find out what you can do in the church and then do it. But that's not really what Paul's getting at here. And being committed to the community, I think he's being committed to honest relationships with the people of that community. It's not just sharing the gospel. He said, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves. What does that mean to share our own selves? 
I like the way John Piper says, he thinks that should be translated as sharing our souls. You've not shared your own soul when you've only shared information, even if it's the most important information. And it's not just working hard for someone. And Paul did that, verse 9. You know, you remember our labor and toil. We worked night and day. But he worked among them as a friend, not an employee. The sharing of his soul is not just the sharing of information and not just a lot of hard work. When you share your soul, you let a person in to see what's really there. You don't conceal your true feelings about things. A shared soul is a shared passion or a shared fear or a shared guilt or a shared longing or a shared joy. And when the gospel flourishes, people share their own souls, their joy and their guilt and their fear and their longing and their passion and their pain. And you can see Paul doing that in this letter. And I think we would do well to ask ourselves whether we're writing or speaking that way to anyone in our lives. Are you sharing your soul with anyone? Now, how did Paul say stuff like that? How did Paul get a life like that? How can you and I get a life like that? Well, I think it starts reading this text with real truth-telling, with real people, in a real church, and then doing it over the long haul. Because that's what Thessalonians is all about. Life for the long haul. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. 